And because faith comes from hearing, hearing the words of Christ, hear carefully the words of our living God from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. <coughs> By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you've heard from me from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you've heard from me from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise He Himself made to us. Eternal life. I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you received from Him remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, remain in Him. This is the word of the Lord. And the words of Christ dwell richly within us. Let's pray. Father, show us your glory. Son, show us your glory. Spirit, show us your glory that we might exalt you, the triune God. We want to behold, treasure, enjoy the loveliness of Christ, the beauty and the majesty of our Lord. Help us, Father. We want to see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love musicals. It's too expensive to watch, and in the season that I'm in, having young kids, I can never go. <laughs> I've seen maybe about 10 or less musicals. My favorite one, The Wicked. So good. Oh, hey, there you go. With that in mind, I went to see a musical this past week. It was played by a bunch of amateur kids. The musical? A little Mermaid. I didn't have any expectations. I mean, I just wanted to see some of the kids of our church members play. And besides, these are amateurs. But it was really good. I was blown away by the production, the professionalism, and the actors. I was like, uh, the, the, the dad taking pictures and videos and smiling and cheering all hard. But I was thoroughly impressed. Good job to all the kids who are in the play, whoever you are. But because I often watch movies and even plays with a critical eye, I couldn't help but notice biblical themes in the musical. In the play, or the musical, Ursula did an excellent job expressing evil and wicked smiles and laughs. Whispers that sound dumb and reasonable. Whispers and even devious facial expressions. But I was particularly captivated by the scene of Ursula deceiving Ariel to make the trade. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie. I don't really like the movie. 
it's just, I don't know, Little Mermaid, what? Who likes Little Mermaid? No offense if you like Little Mermaid. But I, I was captivated by that particular scene. Ariel being devious, trying to deceive to make the dumb trade. It was a bad trade, of course, and Ariel knew that. And of course she resists. She ain't dumb. She knows and has heard how wicked Ursula was. But the whispers keep coming from different angles, different viewpoints, different voices, multiple voices. And in a blink of an eye, Ariel loses her voice. And she chooses to sign the dumb contract with the wicked Ursula. And you might be thinking, why does that matter? Saints, we're all in a journey. This is not our home. The home that you bought, the home that you wish to buy, is not your final home. We're journeying towards our final home. And in that journey, we have so many whispers, don't we? Whispers that sound dumb at first, that seems unreasonable at first, but they keep coming. And as they keep coming, it seems and it becomes convincing and enticing. These whispers can be sin, temptation, or false teaching, but they are nonetheless convincing, either logically, emotionally, or experientially. Since in our journey back to our final home, how do we guard ourselves against these subtle and enticing whispers? As Ross was praying up here, we got to think briefly about some who have deconstructed their faiths. You may know who used to stand with you and journey with you to our final home. But when you think about them now, they're no longer on that journey. Rather, they've settled and made this world their final home. Last Sunday, we heard God commanding us to not to love the world or the things in the world. And saints, when you think about that command, do not love the world or things in the world, it implies the fact that the world might seem lovely. And that it can and it will deliver what it promises. But we want to stand firm. We want to make it to our final home. And that's what this passage is about today. We're in a short series on the first letter from John. The Apostle John was writing a letter to his spiritual children who was endangered by false teaching and whispers. But he wanted them to be reassured of their salvation. Today we're camping on 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. If you're taking notes, the main goal of today's sermon text is embrace the reality. Embrace the reality. What is that reality? Embrace the reality that you have an anointing from the Holy One. Main goal, embrace the reality that you have an anointing from the Holy One. The question is how? How can you embrace this reality? You need to know four things. First, know the time. That's verses 18 through 19. Second, know the truth. Verses 20 to 23. Three, know the outcome of obedience. That's verses 24 to 25. Fourth, know the function of this anointing. Verses 26 through the rest. Know the time, know the truth, know the outcome, know the function. Outcome of obedience, function of this anointing. First is to know the time. In order for us to embrace the reality that we have an anointing from the Holy One, we need to be a timekeeper. Meaning we need to know the time we're living in. Look down with me to verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. 
When John says last hour, what is he referring to? He is referring to the time in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's the era that we're living in currently right now. Christ has come 2,000 years ago. He died, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He promised that He will return. That's the second coming. So when it says last hour, that's the time in between, the era that we're living in right now. The waiting period of Christ is so-called the last hour. Now why does it matter what time it is? Why does it matter of knowing the time that we're living in? In Matthew 16, Jesus is found having a conversation between him and the Pharisees. And he rebukes the Pharisees for knowing how to read the appearance of the sky, but not reading the signs of the times. To Jesus, the ability to read the signs of the times is important. And obviously we're Christians. Christ is our master. If it's important to Christ, obviously it's important to us. Another reason why it's important for us to know the times, because knowing the times will inevitably change the way you, you see things and you live. Let me repeat that. Knowing the time will inevitably change the way you live and change the way you see things. <coughs> First, the way you live changes. If you know the time, you don't need to turn there. Second Peter three is the case in point. Apostle Peter tells us that the day of the Lord is near. That is the end times, the judgment of Christ. Christ first came to give his life as ransom for many. But when he comes a second time, he comes to judge. And Apostle Peter says that day is coming. Therefore, God is commanding you to make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in His sight. Because the day of the Lord is coming, because you know that day, because you know the last hour that you're living in, you ought to live this way. It changes the way we live. If you were to know that you were to die tomorrow, it's going to change how you live. I wrote my own eulogy, that might be weird to you, but it's called Life Plans, and I want to have the end in sight. So I wrote a eulogy about me on my deathbed, thinking about what my wife would say, my, what my kids would say, what God would say, what my church family would say, because I want to be, be remembered in that way. Having an end in mind, changes the way we live. So I try to read my own eulogy each week. Am I successful? No. But it's okay because I have an end in mind, a goal in mind, and I'm running towards that goal. So it's important for you to know the times that you live in. Not only that, but it changes the way you see things. Have you ever had a death kind of experience? Where maybe you were almost hit by a car. Maybe you were jumping from rock to rock at Joshua Tree and you almost fell. That's my story. <laughs> when you have a death kind of an experience, a near death kind of an experience, it changes the way you see things. Things. There are things that the Lord has promised in the last hour. That is, there are things that are to take place in the last hour. So when things that are supposed to happen in the last hour happens, we know, ah, that's been predicted. It's okay. I don't need to panic. I don't need to be anxious. The Lord already told us that it'll happen. Knowing the time and the things that are to take place in that time reassures us of the Lord's control. And what are one of the things that are to happen in the last hour? When the Lord says, it is the last hour, there are things that are promised in that last hour. What is it? It is the coming of the Antichrist. In the last hour, the Lord promised, 
there will be antichrists. Not one, but many. There's a plural form here. There are many antichrists that have already come. And according to verse 19, the antichrists are those who have deconstructed and are so-called ex-evangelicals. They're those, perhaps, who've grown up in the church with you. But like I said in the beginning, they're no longer on the journey that we're in. They've settled for this world as if this world is a final home. There are those who have departed from our fellowship, not transferred, but those who have been excommunicated. No longer part of the table. That's the Lord's table. Now, they may think that they didn't go out from us. Actually, they may still claim that they're part of us. But saints, make no mistake. They did go out from us. And that's because they never belonged to us. They were never regenerate. Since, as we know, mere claims and professions of Christian faith doesn't necessarily make someone a brother or a sister. Yes, our Christian faith cannot be less than a profession, but make no mistake that it is more than a profession. Because we are saved by grace alone, and that faith that saves us never alone, it is always accompanied and evidenced by a new treasure. And that treasure is Jesus. So who are those that went out from us? They are those who love the world and the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride in one's possessions have blinded their eyes. And Christ is no longer their supreme treasure. There are those who claim that they're not sinning by their sinful choices. They're sleeping with their um, significant other and saying, that's okay. The Lord accepts me. There are those who are marked by a pattern of not keeping God's commands. Those who went out from us, who never belonged to us, are those who claim that they love God, but whose life is filled with holding a perpetual grudge and hate towards other brothers and sisters. These are antichrists. Do you know antichrists in your life? You may. There are those who used to be Christians, but who have departed from their faith. What's the purpose of these people going out from us? Look down with me to the last sentence in verse 19. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Stop there. So these people, ex-evangelicals or excommunicated or antichrists, they went out from us. What's the purpose? So that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Friends, saints, these people who have left their faith, who have made shipwreck of their faith and thus being excommunicated, clearly communicates to the world who belongs inside the church and who belongs outside the church. That's the purpose. There is a clear demarcation. Those who belong inside and those who belong outside. Now you might be asking a question. What? How can Christians, who are supposed to embody the principles of Christ's teaching, such as love even your enemies, be so bigoted, biased, divisive, and intolerant? Are you truly loving your neighbors and enemies by telling them that they don't belong inside? Let me give you an answer. The concept of belonging communicates an idea of boundary. So when you say you belong here, there is a clear boundary of belonging. If there is no boundary, there is no such thing as belonging. In other words, in order for you to belong, there must be a boundary. 
You belong in the U.S. You only belong in the U.S. because there is such thing as U.S., which is the boundary of the U.S. Friends, boundary is everywhere. Let me give you an example. She's not here today. St. Barbara has served on staff at our church for two decades. And she just retired. Just FYI, we're planning to throw a big party for her to recognize and appreciate her for the long years of service. Who doesn't love St. Barbara? We're going to probably have that on one, one of the Sunday um, in-between gatherings. So look out for your calendars and emails. Anyways, now she is no longer employed by BBC. That's a clear boundary, isn't it? That's a clear demarcation. The question is, is that unloving? Is that bigoted, divisive, intolerant? No, that's a needed demarcation. That's both loving to her and to us. She now knows her responsibility. She doesn't have a responsibility to come to the church building on Wednesdays and on Thursdays, or Mondays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. No, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. <laughs> she now knows her responsibility, that is, none as a staff. We now are not obligated to pay her. That demarcation and boundary is necessary for a clear communication to both of us and even to the church. It's a loving communication. What about the concept of parental discipline? The Lord says from Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Yes. And He punishes every son He receives. In parental discipline lies an underlying concept of boundary. One of my kids crossed that boundary today and I had to discipline one of my kids. In parental discipline, for the sake of loving them, there is an underlying concept of boundary. That boundary is not bigoted. That boundary is needed. Last example. Not everyone is my wife. Praise God. Right? That's a good thing. There is a clear boundary there and demarcation that is not bigoted, that is not divisive, that is not intolerant. In order for a society to exist, we need boundary. A society cannot exist and function without boundaries. So don't buy into what the world might say. That Christians are bigoted to say that there's inside and outside. No, saints. A church cannot exist without a clear boundary. That's a loving thing to do. Who belongs to BBC? If I were to say BBC, stand. You don't need to stand. And the 151, 151 members, or whoever is here who are members of 151 members would stand. That's a clear demarcation. Who belongs outside BBC? That's a clear boundary that's necessary. Now, if you're a Christian joining us today, who's not part of our church and you're a Christian guest, and you're looking for a church, I'd recommend you to look for a church that has a clear demarcation. Ask them how you can belong to that church and what it means for you to belong to that church. Those questions will help you answer whether they have a good and clear demarcation or boundary. Now, if you're not a Christian joining us today and you're listening to this, thanks for coming. I'm not saying that you're not welcomed here. You are welcomed here. You are always going to be welcomed here to our gathering. I'm thankful and glad that you're here. But just as I'm not part of your biological family, your dad, mom, siblings, extended family members, and just as you are not part of my family, my wife and my three kids, and my extended family members, you, non-Christian, you are not part of Bethany Baptist Church. There's a mutual understanding of that boundary. That's what I'm communicating. And that isn't hate or bigotry as some from our culture would say. That's actually a loving thing to do. 
Thanks for coming and observing what Christians do every Sunday. That is listening to God's word, singing God's word, praying God's word, and guarding each other from the enticement of this world. So thanks for observing. Okay, so back to the first point. In order for us Christians not to be enticed, but be reassured in our journey back home, we are to know the time. You have to know the time that you belong to and that you are living in. That is, in between the time of first coming and the second coming. How do you know that? Well, there are many antichrists. So don't be anxious when people deconstruct their faith. It's predicted here. Some will leave. Even some amongst us right now might leave. That's predicted. So don't be anxious. But embrace the reality. Now second, in order for us to embrace this reality, we are to know the truth. Look down to me. Look, not to me, sorry. Look down with me to verse 20. Verse 20 says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. This is where my main goal comes from. Verse 20. That is to embrace the reality. What is the reality? That you Christian have an anointing from the Holy One. When you look, at, look down with me to uh, the passage. So verse 18 through 26. There is a clear demarcation from verses 18 to 19. And then the contrast really happens in verse 20. So, look up here. Verse 18 and 19 says, It is the last hour. They left. They never were part of us. Verse 20. But you. They left. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. You know the truth. But you there is indicating God's intervention. You remember Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10? There is the concept of you were dead once in your sins. You were alienated from God. And then verse 6 or 5. But God made you alive together with Christ. Christians. Don't be surprised by God's intervention. Praise God that He intervenes. But you there in verse 20 is signifying God's intervention. Not your own wit, wisdom, sheer will, or self-study. All of us, you, me included, are held by God's grace. Every breath, movement, everything surrounding you is grounded in God's grace. To put it shortly, the fact that you are not them, in verses 18 and 19, is pointing to God's gracious election. Irresistible election. Or how can dead sinners respond in faith? How can dead sinners who are blinded see the beauty of Christ? You and I were only able to see that beauty because He opened our eyes. How do we know that? Read verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. Notice it doesn't say, but you are different from them because you've studied harder. Because you clung to the truth more tightly. Because you weren't dumb enough to be enticed to the world like them. Notice that verse 20, that there is something done to the recipient. That is, you have an anointing. The word anointing communicated that there is someone anointing and someone being anointed. So no, you didn't go out from us because you're better, but because someone anointed you. The ground is not in you, but outside of you. Praise God. 
Praise God that what saved you was not inside of you. What saved you was outside of you. Things. Do you know why you know the truth? It's not because you're smarter than others. You might be smarter. But we were all blinded. We were all dead, asleep, unable to choose God, godliness, and life. But the reason why you see is because of God's anointing. He enlightened the eyes of your hearts. We sang the song, And Can It Be, right? That was on page 7 or 8. The third verse captures this idea. You can turn there if you'd like to. It's page 8 of your bulletins. Verse 3. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's sight. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. When it says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, Imagine light coming from the Lord's eyes, diffusing a quickening ray, and as you see him, you woke up. Dungeon that you used to belong to, the imprisonment, the chains fell off, and your heart free. That's why you rose. That's why you went. That's why you followed Christ. This leaves us with nothing to boast other than God who gave us, who gave us eyes to see. So saints of Bethany Baptist Church, thank the Lord today for healing you of your blindness and that you are able to see and recognize true beauty, the beauty of the Lord. Saints of Bethany Baptist Church, thank the Lord today that you know the truth because you have an anointing from the Holy One. And thank the Lord today that you know the truth, not grounded in your smartness or your wit or your will, but because God opened your eyes. There are many pressures in your life, many worries, many burdens in your life. But saints, thank the Lord, because you have eyes to see. And you continue to repent and turn to trust in Christ. Your names are written in the book of life. And that name will never be erased. But one thing I haven't dealt with is defining what we know. So I've talked about the fact that God opened your eyes to see the truth. The question is, what is that truth? Look down with me to verses 21 to 22. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Stop there. So John's saying that he's writing to Christians who know the truth. But to, but to describe the truth, he explains what the lie is, that is, the denial of Jesus the Christ. So he says, you know the truth. What is the truth? He doesn't tell you exactly what the truth is, but he actually tells you what the lie is, and that is, Jesus is not the Christ. That's the lie. Which means, the truth is, Jesus is the Christ. A side note before I get into this glorious truth. Up to this point, uh, John is talking primarily about your life. If you are a Christian, you ought to live like this. But here, he's now veering towards belief. Not merely your changed life, but belief. Christians, we can't merely be about our changes in life. We are doctrine people first. Doctrine comes prior to the changed life. 
And right doctrine must lead to right life. But without right doctrine, we don't have the gospel. Without right doctrine, we're merely striving to live a morally upright and ethical life. And that is not the gospel. Okay, now end of side note, back to verse 22. John, to describe the truth that Christians know, because they've been anointed, explains what the lie is. That is, the denial of Jesus being the Christ. So the truth is, Jesus is the Christ, and you know that truth. Let me unpack that phrase a little bit. If you didn't know, I'm sure 90% of you know, maybe 80%, I'm not sure. That Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Get out of here. So it's not Mr. Christ that we believe believe in. Christ is actually a title given to Jesus, and he affirms it with the disciples and apostles. So think about Peter, the great. The great is a title given to me. It's not my last name. Jesus, the Christ, do you guys know the meaning of Christ? What is the meaning of Christ? What is it? What does Christ mean? Okay. Yes, it's both. The anointed one, in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it's called Messiah, which means Messiah, which is also translated as the anointed one. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is transliterated there. If you want to actually make it not meaningful, but understandable, it would translate as Jesus, the anointed one. That's what it basically means. So in order for us to understand the truth that Jesus is the anointed one, we need to look at four things. First is a general use of the word anointing in the Old Testament. When you think about the word anointing, what comes to mind in the Old Testament? Kings, yes. What else? Who? Oil. Oil, yes. You pour oil on the king, perhaps, and smear it. What else? Prophets, priests, yes. So you're thinking about people, categories of people. Kings were anointed. When you look at 2 Samuel 2, King David is anointed. Priests are also anointed. That is, Aaron was anointed in Exodus 40. And prophet is also anointed. That's prophet Elisha. From prophet Elijah got anointed. So there's a general use of the word anointing in the Old Testament. The meaning of anointing is you pour oil to set that person apart for a specific use or function or role for the Lord. You're setting that person apart. That's anointing in the Old Testament. But there's another specific use of the word anointing in the Old Testament. When you think about king in the Old Testament, that's epitome of the good king, Who comes to mind? King? Yes. King David. That is the anointing of Davidic king. Psalm 2 was read by Sammy here this morning. David is special. In a sense that he reigned as an epitome of the right and just king, ruling the people of God in the land of God. So when David was ruling, there was no war, sometimes. And it seems like peace was administered to Israel. Do you remember how Israel came into the promised land? Israel was in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, incubated. But the Lord hears their cry and he says, no more. I will bring them. So he brings them out into the promised land. And he says, I will give this land and you will settle down here. You're going to reign here. Garden of Eden failed. Promised land, a king will reign in my place. And King David is the epitome of the king that's supposed to administer justice. But the land was conquered. David dies. But God gives a promise that there will come a lineage from King David, the Davidic king, who would come once again and administer true peace, and true justice. And then flip over all the way to New Testament. 
who comes into the picture? That is? Yes, Jesus. Peter claims in Matthew 16 16 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Peter says that, he's affirming, you are that divinity king. Finally, you've come. Set us free from this bondage, from this Roman Empire. You are that chosen king that we've been waiting for. We want to go back to the Garden of Eden. But it's strange. Because whenever Jesus is mentioned as the Messiah, He silences His disciples. He says, shh, stop it. Don't tell other people that I'm the one who's to come. Why is that? Why does Jesus say in the Gospel account of Mark, don't tell people who I am. I've healed you, but don't tell people. <coughs> it's because people misunderstood Jesus' identity. As you know, he was the Davidic king. But he was in, infinitely more transcendent than the idea of setting Israelites um, free from the political reign of Rome. He wasn't there to set up the throne exactly as it was in the days of David 1,000 years earlier. So that's why Jesus says, stop. Don't misunderstand my identity. Conclusion, that's how the term Messiah, the anointed one, works. Jesus is not our magic genie in a bottle. When we say Jesus, we should be thinking in our mind that Jesus, the anointed one, the promised priest, king and prophet, the one who's been anointed by God to bring about our redemption. He is Jesus, who's been set aside by God, anointed by God, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate Christ. So when someone denies that Jesus is the Christ, they're denying that Jesus is not the promised king, not the promised priest, not the promised prophet. They're denying that Jesus can't save. They deny Jesus' salvific work. And by denying Jesus' salvific work, they're denying the Father as well. You can't pick and choose what you want to believe about this. It comes in a package. You deny the Son, you can't have the Father. You deny the Father, you also can't have the Son. The Trinity comes in a package. So the truth we know is the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God who died on the cross and rose to rescue His people, to administer true peace for Israel. But fellow saints and fellow sinners, did you sin this past week? Did you fall into temptation this past week? When we sin, we are forgetting that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only are we forgetting that Jesus is the Messiah, we're denying that Jesus is the Messiah. We often function as if we deny the Messiahship of Jesus by boasting in our own righteousness. Are you hiding in your own sin? Today, are you hiding and not confessing your sin? By doing so, you are denying Jesus' Messiahship. Praise God that that's not our general pattern of hiding sin. Praise God that you and I haven't been ultimately enticed by the message of the Antichrist, claiming that Jesus is not the Christ. That's grace that we haven't been enticed by their message. If you're a non-Christian, if you are not a Christian joining us, I say this all the time, that is, our messages are long, our prayers are long, our singing is long, our gathering is long. Thanks for joining us. If you forget everything that I've said, remember this, that you and I are all sinners, that we can never 
achieve perfection. So we've sinned against the Lord. But you can be forgiven today if you confess that Jesus is the Christ. The one who's come to save sinners. So choose life today. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So repent and turn to treasure and turn to trust in Christ supremely so that you might be forgiven. So the second way for all of us to embrace the reality is by knowing the truth. And in order for us to embrace the reality, the third way is by knowing the outcome of obedience. Look down with me to verse 24. Verse 24. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. In the ESV, LEV, and NIV, it's better translated as to remain in you as a command. LEV says that what you've heard from the beginning must remain in you, which highlights the imperative aspect. So what you've heard from the beginning must remain in you. Let it remain in you. Question again is what must remain in you? What you've heard from the beginning. Saints, our Christian life begins at hearing the words of Christ. Hearing is often involved for someone to come to faith. But Christianity is not merely hearing, it is believing in what we've heard. But not merely believing initially, but continuously. That is to say, that what we've heard from the beginning must remain in us and continue to remain in us. He's saying, so look up here. Cling to Christ continuously. Continue to cling to Christ. It's obvious that temptations, trials, sufferings, afflictions, and enticing words of the serpent don't come once. I wish it came once, but it doesn't come once. It comes constantly in different angles, with different people, with different teaching, in different masks. So cling to Christ continuously. Parable of the sword might give us a good illustration of this text. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, um, if you have the black hardcover pew Bible, that is in page 918. Luke chapter 8. Parable of the sower is a good illustration to, to, to display this idea of clinging to Christ continuously. Before you look down to verse 13 of Luke 8, sorry, that's 917 if you have the black hardcover Bible. Before you look down to verse 13, the sower throws the seed where? You guys remember? Where? The sower, th the sower throws his seeds everywhere. Yes. The sower is just throwing seeds everywhere. Hoping that it will bear fruit. Now it lands in four different places. What are they? Along the path. Rocky ground. Yes. Thorny bush. And then the good soil. Jesus is telling a parable. The seed is thrown everywhere, but it lands on four different places. Path, rocky ground, thorny bush, some in the good ground. Now look down to verse 13. This is, how, this is what it says. The seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life, and produce no mature fruit. 
but the seed and the good ground, these are the ones, now here are the characteristics here, having heard the word, hold on to it, by enduring it, produce fruit. That's the characteristics of seed that falls on good ground. Do you have any saints who have left the faith? But they, they so joyfully received the word in the beginning. That's predicted here in verse 13. Seed that are fallen on the rocky ground. They receive the word with joy. They're joyful that they have eternal life. But having no root, they believe for a while. But they fall away in time of testing. The thorny bush choked by the worries of this world. But those that fall in the good ground, they hear the word and they hold on to it. And by enduring, produce fruit. So saints, cling to Christ each day and moment. Did you fall into sin this week, even last night? Repent and again put your saving faith in Christ. That's the Christian life. Your repeated clinging onto Christ is not pointless, not aimless, not fruitless, not futile, not inconsequential, not insignificant, not irrelevant, not trivial. Keep clinging to Christ by repenting and trusting in Christ. And what's the reward of this? The second sentence in verse 24. Then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. That is the eternal life. <clears throat> now I'll explain this when I was preaching from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. One of the purposes why John writes to the readers is so that they may join the fellowship, right? But there is an ongoing fellowship that's happening between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And John is writing so that they may join in that fellowship. It says right here, if you remain, if, if my anointing remains, or if the words, if what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, you will have eternal life. That is the eternal life between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The gospel is not having a ticket to heaven, an insurance. The gospel is the fact that you get God. The good news is, now you have God. That is, that you get to join the eternal fellowship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's eternal life. Christians, do you have hidden sins tucked in somewhere? Tremble. It is dangerous to hide sin. You hiding sin is perhaps an evidence of you denying Jesus being the Messiah. it may signify that you don't remain in Him. Saints, make no mistake, sin will find you. If there is hidden sin tucked in, hidden away, confess your sins today. Receive fresh new morning mercies today. Find the brother, find the sister where you can confess your sin today. Kids, let's know. You have the privilege of growing up in the church. You have the privilege of hearing the truth of Jesus every Sunday. You sitting down each Sunday and hearing something, it doesn't have to be everything, is meaningful. The adults that are sitting here who are claiming themselves to be Christians became Christians because they heard the word of Christ every Sunday. They heard words of Christ enough where God opened their hearts. So you, paying attention here, 
listening to this long sermon is not meaningless. Write something down when you hear. If you don't know how to write, make it your goal to remember one sentence and share that to your siblings or share that to an adult or share that to your parents. Kids, keep paying attention. Okay. As I've said in the beginning, I'm now moving on to the fourth point. There are many false teachings that are subtle and nuanced that can lead any one of us astray. In order to know that we're going the right way, we must embrace the reality. That is, we have received the anointing. How? Fourth, by knowing the function of this anointing. Now all of a sudden, do you remember my main goal? Embrace the reality. What is the reality? That you have received, or that you have an anointing. But I never really defined what that anointing is. Verses 26 through 27 will tell you what this anointing is. And the answer is the Holy Spirit. Saints, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. Why do I know that this, this anointing is the Holy Spirit? Because verse 27 says that it will teach you all things. And it's true and is not a lie. In John 16 and 14, Jesus constantly reminds us the function of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit who will come to you so that you're not left as an orphan will teach you all things and guide you into all the truth. So consider the Holy Spirit as a guardrail. It's such a great comfort knowing that God not only starts salvation, but He finishes our salvation. He sustains our faith. Do you remember how the anointing enlightened our eyes? In verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. That's why you know the truth. So the reason why you know that Jesus is the Messiah is because of the anointing. So the anointing gives you sight. But the anointing that remains in you continues to give you sight. It continues to help you wear the loveliness of the world away and helps you see Christ and His beauty. So praise God that you have an anointing that is the Holy Spirit residing in you. And saints, God will never take away this anointing from you. It can't be done. The Holy Spirit will always remain within you. The Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ will never forsake you. What a great hope that we have. The salvation God has begun, He finishes. Now may I remind you to, to conclude that we live in the last hour. So keep your eyes open. And the Holy Spirit will keep your eyes open. So a command is given and you are to obey that command, but the Holy Spirit enables us to obey that command. So await with your eyes open the return of the King. And until he comes, embrace the reality. That is, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. Let me close with a prayer. Father, I praise you. praise you because your word never returns void. Your word will ever always accomplish whatever it seeks to do, further hardened or opened or open the eyes of the blind. Father, keep our eyes open to see and to be captivated by the loveliness of Christ 
so that the loveliness of this world would wear out. That as we are on our journey back to our final home, that you would help us to guard each other. That you would help us to not be enticed by the whispers of this world. But that, w- that we would continue to live by faith, knowing that the Holy Spirit resides in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have a tradition here at our church that is to share 